Well, good evening. Encourage me, good evening. Oh, much better. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezra in chapter 4. Ezra 4. And as we find ourselves in this chapter in Ezra 4, let's be reminded that this book is all about the return of the Jewish captives to the land of Judah. And they have returned after many years, and we're reading the history as compiled by Ezra of the Jews and their struggle to rebuild, starting with the temple. We recently saw in our previous study that the temple was rebuilt, or at least the foundation was laid. They built the brazen altar, and then, of course, they started to build the temple, and they laid the foundation. But as we'll see this evening, as soon as a work of God begins, it seems the devil gets busy. If you start to build in your life or rebuild in your life, you can guarantee that the devil will get busy in your life. He's going to look to bring you down, to slow the work, to stall the work, to distract you from the work that the Holy Spirit desires to do in and through your life. So this is both an account of the Jewish captives, but it's also a very practical lesson with great application to building our lives in Christ. Let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now in the name of Jesus that as we have had this time of fellowship and worship, that this time of study in your word would be beneficial to building us up. As we seek to build our lives upon the rock who is Christ, may our foundation be secure, may our foundation be sure, and may our lives be lived to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4. We're going to see in this chapter, actually in chapters 4 and 5, not tonight, but just in chapter 4 tonight, but in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see that there was opposition to rebuilding the temple and the city of Jerusalem over the years after the captivity. And let's just look at the first three verses. We read in verse 3 of chapter 4 in Ezra that when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you, Bill, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him ever since the time of Esharan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of, the, of king of Persia, commanded us. And so an interesting, interesting account here. We, it almost looks like they're, they're saying no to help. All oh, these people, they, you know, they just want to help, and the Jews are being inclusive and not allowing them to help. But that's not the truth of what was happening here. You see, the people of Israel were opposed by their enemies during the reign of Cyrus. We've talked about this before. The enemies did not want the Jews to rebuild their temple and ultimately rebuild their city. Uh, They had much to gain should the Jews fail to re-enter the land and build up their their kingdom, their their country. And as a result, they tried to infiltrate the project. Now this happens. Enemies will try to infiltrate a project in order to sabotage it. They weren't interested in helping. They were interested in destroying 
The enemy has come to kill, uh, to, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And because of that, you can know that whenever the enemy wants to get involved in something, it's to destroy it. It's not to help. You know, some people will take the help of people who are really not godly people. And sometimes when you're doing a ministry, it's easy to sort of get funding from the, maybe the government or other agencies. When those government agencies or other agencies, private agencies, really don't believe the same things we do. And oftentimes what happens is you succeed in aligning yourself with the enemy. And now you're beholden to an enemy who wants to destroy the work. They were far too shrewd for that. They knew that these enemies were trying to infiltrate the project in order to sabotage it. They attempted to deceive the Jewish leadership in order to influence them. You always have to be on guard from the enemy. In the church, in ministry, but also in your own lives, in your families, you have to constantly be on guard. It's a shame that you can never relax. You have to stay sober and vigilant. Sometimes Christians believe that you can. You can just sort of relax and kick back and, you know, trust God. Yes, you can trust God, but you can trust that the devil's going to try to destroy. So one of the things you have to do is stay on guard. If you're learning martial arts, I'll tell you, learn very, very carefully. You always have to keep your hands up. You can't put your guard down. The minute you do, you're going to get your lights knocked out. And I'll tell you what, they at least had their guard up. There are many Christians that don't have their guard up. They're walking through life thinking that, oh, nobody's out to get me. No, no, the the enemy's out to destroy you. And when you put yourself in places where the enemy can get to you and destroy you, you're just helping him do his job. Many Christians are responsible for their own failures, their own fall, simply because they did not stay sober and vigilant. The scripture tells us, I believe it's Peter, tells us that we need to remain sober and vigilant because our enemy, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. So that's not something I'm making up. The scripture has told you, you have to constantly be on guard. I think one of the reasons our culture today is in the position it's in, because it's because people of good conscience and moral conduct, godly people, let their guard down. I can remember going back maybe 25 years ago. It wasn't even that long ago, really. Maybe 25, maybe closer to 30 years ago. I remember working in the workforce and seeing some of this woke agenda start to come through, just the very beginnings of it. And I spoke up. I wasn't very... Uh, I wasn't opposed all that much because most people uh, agreed with me. I wasn't being contentious, but I had an issue with them promoting homosexuality in the workplace, transgenderism in the workplace, and I said so. Now, it didn't change the culture completely, but it it kept it at bay a little bit because they were trying to do certain things that I, I and others objected to, and so it took them a while. But then as people let their guard down, these agendas have been promoted, and now our elementary school children not people in the corporate world. Our elementary school children are being harassed. They're being indoctrinated to believe that evil is good and good is evil. And that didn't happen overnight. That happened because over a period of time, the church and others, we've let our guard down. The Jews did not let their guard down. To their credit, they knew they had an enemy. 
They knew that they were just trying to deceive the Jewish leadership, that they were offering their unsolicited assistance in order to compromise the work. That's it. The devil wants to compromise the work. You know, if you're building a home and you use cement that's not mixed properly, or a patio and the cement's not mixed properly, it becomes compromised, which means it cracks, it crumbles, and ultimately the structure fails. It's not, it's not just using the right amount of cement. The cement itself, the concrete, has to be mixed properly. So understand, it's very easy to compromise a work, a work of God. Just, you know, you're doing the right things, but it, it's not in the right mix. That is, things aren't in the right proportion. Yeah, you're, you know, you're talking about God, but you're not talking about sin. And so it's like that concrete that's not mixed properly. The structure begins to fail. Because there's not a proper mix of the truths of God. Things are left out, kind of like brick without straw. It crumbles. These enemies wanted the Jews to trust and rely on them and not on God. Never look to anyone other than God to do the work of God. Amen? Well, they lied about their relationship with God. They weren't telling the truth when they said they served God. They didn't seek the God of Israel. They sought to destroy the work of God. They hated Israel. They, they could not have properly sacrificed to the God of Israel, as they said, because they didn't have a high priest and they didn't have a temple. So when they said, we have been sacrificing to God since the time of Esharan, the king of Assyria, who brought us here, they're lying. How could they have sacrificed to God when there was no temple and no high priest? Oh, they were sacrificing, but not to the God that we serve or that the Jews served at that time. Many people will tell you, and I hear this all the time, oh, we all serve the same God, whether it's the God of the Muslims or the... I mean, in the tr- there's truth that we serve the same God as the God of the Jews. It's just that, let's be honest, let's be real, Jews today, they reject Christ. So, not really. Not really, because they reject God. At least they reject God the Son. Because of that, we really don't serve the same God, or at least they reject the God we serve. And let's be honest, I mean, Muslims don't serve a God that even remotely looks like the God we serve. And any other God you can cook up or come up with isn't the same God we serve. We serve the God of the Bible. We serve Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We serve the God who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when people come to you and they try to make nice, and they say, well, we all serve the same God. You know, you believe in God, I believe in God. It's all the same thing. No, it's not. And these enemies tried that game, and they didn't get very far, thank goodness. They lied. They couldn't have actually sacrificed to God like they said. Who were these individuals? Well, ultimately, they became the hated Samaritans we hear so much about in the New Testament. They had abandoned God, and they had abandoned God's word. The Assyrian captivity and repopulation of Israel completely destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They were taken into captivity in 722 B.C., and now, hundreds of years later, there's not even a vestige, really, of the northern kingdom. Anyone who had been serving God had been taken to Babylon, for the most part, some were in Egypt, but they had been taken to Babylon and now set free by Cyrus, and, and many of them sent back to rebuild their temple and their culture and their country. 
But the Lord ensured that those that were resettled in Israel were at least taught how to worship the Lord. We learn that in 2 Kings 17. But those that were resettled in Israel continued to worship their foreign gods as well. So they worshiped foreign gods. They worshiped, quote unquote, God. But at the end of the day, they didn't really know God. Jesus came in uh, contact with these individuals in the New Testament. And they were converted. They gave their hearts to the true God, the God of Israel, through Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. But this was a time where they were still the enemies of the Jews. Now, the Jewish leadership refused the assistance of their enemies in rebuilding the temple. They would not allow those outside of Israel to join the project. And that's why we don't partner with other types of ministries that are not Christian. I mean, there's, there's probably very good agencies and very good churches and charitable organizations that try to help people. And maybe they do a lot of good. But we're not really into ecumenism, you know, this, this idea of being ecumenical. This, you know, we come together, uh, you know, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, we all come together and we all work together, one big happy world. That's just not how we roll. Because we can't be aligned with those that don't believe the same things we do and don't believe in the same God that we do. The prophet Amos, I believe, was who said, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? You have to know God to serve God. Amen? And if you don't know God and you, and you don't serve God, who are you serving? Who can be used by, uh, who can use those people to sabotage the work? The devil, because he takes people like that captive to do his will, the scripture says. So you can't let your guard down, and they didn't. They were determined, that is the Jews, they were determined to rely on God's resources and not on the assistance of others. God was working through Cyrus. He said he would in the book of Isaiah, 150 years ahead of time, and he was working through Cyrus, king of Persia, to provide for them, and they accepted that help because that was God's will. But whatever help, which was no help at all, that was being promised by their enemies, they rejected to their credit. Well, what do you think happened? Look at verses 4 and 5. The enemies of the Jews tried another tactic now. They tried to discourage them from rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So we read, Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So these enemies were not miffed because they wouldn't let them participate. They were out to destroy them from the very beginning. And when that plot was uncovered, they resorted to out-and-out open tactics. Kind of like those evil people in our country today that for many years said one thing but were working behind the scenes against people of good conscience and morality. They would say, oh, no, no, we believe in traditional marriage. Most people don't realize that uh, President Obama said that in both of his campaigns. But after he was elected the second time, then he evolved on the subject and embraced blasphemy. So what are we supposed to believe? Others as well. They all said what we wanted to hear. And then when they got elected, then they showed their true colors. Here's what happens In our world today, people work surreptitiously, that is, behind the scenes, until they get enough power to come out honestly, to come out up front 
and oppose us outwardly. We are now in a phase in our nation and in our culture where the enemy is opposing us outwardly. It used to be behind the scenes. Now it's outwardly. That's what happened here. They tried to weaken the resolve of God's people to obey his will. They wanted to discourage the Jews from doing God's work. They wanted the Jews to fear for their lives instead of trusting that God would protect them. Have you noticed that our government is out to make people afraid? Have you noticed that the media, which is the government, which is the media, which is the government, the mainstream media these days, the propaganda wing of our government, is making people afraid. They want you to fear for your life so that they can control you. We've seen this before. We saw it in the last century over and over again, the failed experiments of fascism and communism in Europe and throughout the world. And yet we never seem to learn that lesson, do we? Brothers and sisters, we have to remember that the devil wants to make you afraid. God wants to strengthen you. How many times does God tell us over and over again in his scriptures, fear not, do not be afraid. I am with you. Fear is the enemy. We cannot give way to fear. Well, they wanted them to fear. The enemies wanted the Jews to fear. They tried to oppose God's people in their service to him. They actually went out and hired counselors, attorneys, if you will. They went out and hired counselors to observe the Jews and work against them. Today we have the ACLU and other organizations that go out of their way to oppose decency and morality in our world, justice in our world. These individuals came together. They're trying to discourage the Jews. They're working against them. They wanted to frustrate their plans to rebuild the temple. They're trying to stand in the way of the work of God. So very little has changed. (laughs) Thousands of years later, it's the same story because it's the same enemy. But we serve the same God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? What you do need to know is that the enemies were somewhat successful. Not ultimately, but they definitely slowed the work down. Because the Jews struggled to rebuild their temple for the next 21 to 22 years. They did. They had laid the foundation of the temple within two years of their return in 536 B.C. We saw that in chapter 3 verse 8. But then Cyrus the Persian, who God was working through, was fatally wounded in battle. And then he was succeeded by his son Cambyses II. That took place in 530 BC, so about six years after the temple foundation was laid. Well, then we read, or we, we know from history, that Cambyses II was succeeded by one of his royal officers, Darius. Histispes in 522 B.C. is the Darius that's mentioned there at the end of the section we just read. And the Samaritans actually succeeded in bringing the work to a standstill for 16 years. They used bureaucracy, intimidation, and we'll see in just a minute, that kept happening to the Jews. But they succeeded in bringing the work to a standstill for about 16 years until 520 B.C., Without the enemy's constant opposition, the work would have been completed so much sooner. And isn't that always the case? The Jews became discouraged, though. 
And they became distracted by other things during that time. That's what Haggai, the prophet, tells us in Haggai chapter 1. And so the Lord sent Haggai and Zechariah, the prophet, to encourage them to continue to rebuild the temple. They needed to be encouraged to continue God's work because they had been discouraged by their enemies. So they finally started rebuilding the temple again after 16 long years of failure in 520 B.C. And the temple was finally completed after four more years of faithful building in March of 515 B.C. We learned that in chapter 6 of the book of Ezra. Listen, I've got a question for you. I'm just going to take a pause because it's one thing to talk about the situation in our culture today, in our, in our nation, or the situation back at that time. But how about in your own life? Because it's real easy to look at the world and talk about the things that are going on there or talk about history. But what about you? What work of God has the enemy brought to a stand still in your life? Does God want to do a work? Oh, yes, he does. He wants to build in and through your life. But many times those works go undone because we get to a place of distraction or discouragement. Listen, if the enemy can influence you and deceive you, you'll give in and you'll give up trying. If the enemy can make you feel weak, you'll give in and give up trying. If the enemy can make you fear for your safety, you'll give in and give up trying. If the enemy can find your weakness and exploit it, you'll give in and give up trying. If the enemy can break your spirit, you'll give in and you'll give up trying. The enemy is trying to get you to give in. You need to know that. He's trying to get you to give in. And it's the one thing we must never do. Give in. Ever. We cannot be, as Christians, as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, those who are given to compromise. This is not the time or the place or the world we're living in today where a Christian can compromise their values, the Word of God, serving God. As Winston Churchill once said, never give in. In fact, he said it this way in a speech. Never give in, never give in, never, never, never in nothing, great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Winston Churchill was known for his great speeches, and you can see why. Never give in. Well, they didn't give in after they started rebuilding. And as I said, they completed the temple. Took 20-something years. Probably should have taken a quarter of that time. But they did complete the work. God is faithful. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. It might get delayed as you don't allow yourself to be used by God, as you separate yourself from God, as you allow the enemy to distract you and discourage you. But the work will get completed because God is faithful. Amen? Well, the people of Israel were opposed by their enemies, not just during the reign of Cyrus and then into the reign of Darius, but in the latter reigns of Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And what Ezra does here now in the latter part of chapter 4, he sort of jumps ahead because he's on the topic of opposition. So, yes, they rebuilt the temple, but then they went on to try to rebuild the city. 
And the enemy opposed them when they tried to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Okay, they rebuilt the temple, finally. They overcame the opposition and they rebuilt the temple. As we said, uh, it was rebuilt in uh, 520 BC. But now, over the next few decades, they're going to try to rebuild the city. And we read about that in verse 6. We read in verse 6, At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged, that is the enemies of Israel, lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Don't you love these accusations? People have lost their careers, their reputations, their freedom because of accusations, false accusations. If someone accuses you of something horrific and they have absolutely no proof, but that accusation just sort of takes flight and people start to talk about it, it doesn't matter whether you're acquitted. It doesn't matter whether you're proved innocent in a court of law. There's always this cloud of suspicion over you, right? Accusations are a thing of the devil. Making accusations, especially false accusations, these were false accusations. The enemies of the Jews prevented them from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Now remember, they they rebuilt the temple in 520 B.C. Well, in 486 B.C., again, Ezra's jumping ahead. He's giving us a, a survey of all of the opposition against the Jews rebuilding first the temple and then the city. And he's giving us that in advance. And then when we get to the next section, we'll go back and talk more about the temple. But for now, he just wants us to know that there's a history of opposition that ran from the time of Cyrus all the way down to the time of Artaxerxes. So Darius Histispis was reigning from 522 to 486 B.C. Now he had ultimately supported the Jews in their rebuilding projects. So they were trying to rebuild the city after they rebuilt the temple. And this king, Darius, helped them. He supported them. We find that out in chapter 6 of this book. But the Jews then began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem after the temple was rebuilt, and they tried that in about 515 B.C. I think that's when they actually completed the uh, temple. Uh, they, they started rebuilding it in 520, but in 515, after four more years, they actually completed it. So now they think, well, the temple's rebuilt. Now we need to build the walls and rebuild the city. So they try. <clears throat> but you see, Darius Histispes was succeeded by his son, Xerxes I, in around 486 B.C. And that's when the Samaritans accused the Jews of sedition against Persia and through bureaucracy and accusation, false accusation, they stalled their efforts to rebuild the city. It was during this time, while Xerxes was king, that Haman later tried unsuccessfully to exterminate the Jews in 474 B.C. That's talked about in the book of Esther, which we'll get to eventually. So this was really a difficult time while Xerxes was king because they were being opposed in the rebuilding of the city, and they were nearly exterminated through a genocidal man, Haman, who had ambitions to destroy the Jews. Hmm. Seems like the devil was working overtime. Yeah, because he didn't want God's people to rebuild. He didn't want God's people to be successful. He didn't want things to be good for them. He wanted to destroy them. But we know, and we'll get to it when you get to the book of Esther, didn't work out the way he expected. He had gallows made to hang Mordecai and others, and guess who ended up on those gallows? He did, Haman. And so if you're familiar with the Feast of Purim and you're familiar 
with the book of Esther, you know God is always faithful. Amen? Well, then we jump ahead. In verses 7 through 23, the rest of our study today that we're going to talk about and read, we learn that the enemies of the Jews again, again, prevented them from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem in 465 B.C. We know that Xerxes, though he did not allow them to rebuild the city, had strongly supported and protected the Jews from 474 to 465 B.C. And the Jews once again began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem after 474 B.C. But then Xerxes was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes Longamanus, in 465 B.C. And any time there was a change in leadership, people got the upper hand. That is, their enemies got the upper hand. Let's read in verse 7, and I think we'll just read, well, we'll read maybe through 16, verse 16. And in the days of Artaxerxes, so now Ezra jumps ahead to the next time they were dealing with opposition and rebuilding, and in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Midradath, Tabeel, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. That is their enemies. I'm going to write a letter now. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and the officials over the men of Tripolis, Persia, Erech and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. So that's the opening. This is the letter. This is the copy of the letter they sent to him, verse 11. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, and a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. Isn't it something, a letter-writing campaign, huh? Listen, the Samaritans wrote this letter, and they accused the Jews of sedition, rebellion against Persia. Now, Ezra chapter 4, verse 8, all the way through Ezra 6, 18, are written, these verses are written in Aramaic. They tell us they're written, Ezra tells us that they're written in Aramaic. There are three languages that the Bible is written in, You have Hebrew, of course, you have Greek, but you also have small portions of the Bible written in Aramaic. This is one of them. Aramaic was the international language of the day, and these were letters and decrees that Ezra simply copied without translating them into Hebrew. So he just lifted them up, cut and paste, dropped them into his documents and his historical records as they were written. But the Samaritans were united in their opposition against the Jews, and they accused the Jews of rebuilding Jerusalem 
without a specific decree from Artaxerxes. And it's true, they didn't have a specific decree from Artaxerxes. They had a decree from Cyrus. But the Samaritans accused the Jews of rebellion. And it was based on their long history with Babylon. But they had never been rebellious against the Persians. So this is a false accusation. So Artaxerxes responds to the Samaritans. He responds to their letter, which was accusing the Jews of sedition against Persia. Let's read verses 17 through verse 23. The king sent this reply to Rehum, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes and tribute and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? And as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. So you see how the enemy works hasn't changed all that much. False accusation, interdiction, getting involved, trying to stop the work of God through intimidation and fear, through through false statements, hoaxes. We've seen so much of this in our culture over the last maybe six or seven years. Just say something. It doesn't have to be true. Just say it enough and get the media to say it over and over again and just say it's true even though you have absolutely no proof. And you know what? People are so stupid they'll believe it. And we're living in a society where there's an epidemic of stupidity or at least ignorance because people just believe whatever they hear. What happened then is happening now. But what happened then is that Artaxerxes responded to the Samaritans' letter accusing the Jews of sedition. He responded to this letter, confirming that Jerusalem had a long history of rebellion against Babylon. Yes, against Babylon, not against Persia. He confirmed that Jerusalem had had been a city of great power and influence, and indeed it had for many years. And he issued an order to immediately stop the Jews from rebuilding Jerusalem because he feared that they were going to rebel. He He viewed the Jews' attempt to rebuild Jerusalem as a threat To his kingdom, it was not a threat. In fact, they had an edict to rebuild that went back to the former king, Cyrus of Persia. Well, the Samaritans, of course, immediately stopped the Jews from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. They just couldn't wait. So this is Ezra giving us the the lengthy history of all of the opposition from their enemies. And he even goes into the time when they opposed them building the city or rebuilding the city, not just the temple. We'll get back to the temple next week. But Artaxerxes Longinimus, who is the man that was sort of bamboozled into issuing this letter because he wasn't given all the facts, Artaxerxes Longinimus, king of Persia, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city in 444 B.C. 
That's when Nehemiah is sent to go rebuild the wall. So what happened? What changed? I mean, first he says, no, stop the work, and then he sends Nehemiah to complete the work. Well, the truth got out. Imagine that. Seldom happens anymore. And we'll find out more about this as we go through future studies in Ezra and then into Nehemiah. We'll see what these enemies were saying about Jerusalem wasn't true. They just used it to get the work to be uh, stalled and to stop the Jews from rebuilding their city because they were enemies and they were inspired by Satan to destroy God's people. So what happened? Well, we'll read more about it as we go through these studies. First, Ezra returned with the king's permission in 458 B.C. Remember, all of this is taking place around 465 B.C., up, up to and including, um, I guess, about 465 B.C. when these things started to take place. And then in 458 B.C., Ezra returns with the king's permission, Artaxerxes' permission, to reform the religious welfare of the Jews. We'll cover that in Ezra 7 through 10. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. The Samaritans may have written their letter to Artaxerxes during the 13 years following Ezra's return, but in either case, this work had come to a halt. And then Nehemiah returned in 444 B.C., and we'll get to that when we get to our studies in the book of Nehemiah. And he had in his hand a specific decree from Artaxerxes to rebuild the city. We'll learn about that in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. And you know something that's amazing to me is this decree that Nehemiah received— was prophesied by Daniel the prophet as the beginning of the 77s, which we studied on Sunday mornings in Daniel chapter 9. So the king no longer viewed the Jews' attempt to rebuild Jerusalem as a threat to his kingdom. We're going to see that's because the facts got out. The truth was made known. And once he knew the truth, then he realized that he had been lied to. Nehemiah's stature and loyalty to the throne no doubt prompted his appointment as governor by Artaxerxes. And then the king, Artaxerxes, sought to establish Jerusalem as a Persian stronghold against Greece and Egypt, who were rivaling empires. So yes, the work got done. Yes, it was stalled a while by their enemies. But ultimately, we'll see when we get to the book of Nehemiah, not only was the the temple rebuilt in 515 BC, but the walls were rebuilt after 444 BC. When Nehemiah returned with permission to rebuild the city. So it took a while, but God's work got done. Just know something, it might take a while. But the word of God never fails, and the work of God will always be completed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you encourage us through your word. You give us reason to hope and reason to believe not to be cynical or pessimistic. Yes, we have enemies, and and yes, they at times they triumph. That is, at times they get temporary victories. They discourage us. They keep the work from getting done. They distract us from doing the work. But at the end of the day, your work will be completed, for you are faithful. Help us to know that in our world today. Help us to know that in our lives as we submit our hearts to you to be used by you, that you might work in and through our lives. Oh, Lord God, we don't want any good work in our lives to get stalled. We don't want any, anything in our life to distract us or discourage us from doing the work you called us to do. So, Lord, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit in great measure to help us to get the truth out. May the truth get out there in this wicked world. 
that minds and eyes might be open to who you are, to your great love, to the truth that you came and died on a cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, and that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. Many people who don't know the truth come to know the truth and come to know you through the truth. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.